Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome back to episode 54 of the Hidden History Happy Hour. Alex, can you imagine it's been a month since we recorded an episode? Uh, I'm embarrassed and apologetic to our audience. Sorry about that, guys. We've had a few things yeah, going on. Yeah, listen. Uh, uh, I've moved house. Yes. Um, well, yeah, so I just wanted to make sure we have great fans. They've all been concerned. Nothing wrong with either of us. Thanks to everybody for asking. This is basically just summer scheduling snafus. And um, as you may notice, Alex and I have both uh, recently relocated. Alex and his lovely bride have moved into a new place in London, and I'm spending much of the summer in Fallbrook, California. Now, Ooh. Alex, mm -hmm. since as we record this episode, we're at pretty much the halfway mark until next Christmas. I wanted to note that according to our extensive research team here at the Hidden History Happy Hour, it turns out Fallbrook, California, where I'm sitting right now, was the inspiration for the fictional town of Bedford Falls in a yeah, little picture uh, called It's a Wonderful Life. My mother's favorite film. Uh, yeah. That's great. I'm gonna put that's a link great. to the I'm gonna put a link to the article, but it's uh there's the Potter Street. There actually was a James E. Potter who uh, looks almost exactly like the actor that played uh, Potter in the movie. Although I should note, according to my research, the real James E. Potter was a wonderful man, completely unlike the scurvy spider that was the fictional Bedford Falls villain in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, good story. I like it. Yeah. Now, uh, what in, are you honor, in honor both of today's stories involving France and It's a Summer Afternoon, I'm drinking a very nice rosé. Rosé, of course, having its provenance in the south of France, but not so fast. Rosé actually was consumed at least as far back as the Phoenicians and brought to France by them. Am I yes, right, Alex? That is correct. And rosé is potentially the first form of wine because of the skin contact. And the method is, is one for which evidence has been found sooner than uh, earlier than any other form of, of wine. And it kind of makes sense because it's a simple way to make wine. I'm not doing rosé down. I think it's tremendous, uh, but it, it's, it's possible. It was the very first form of, of wine. I perverse as I am. So I thought of the people we're going to be talking about, I knew they'd be drinking uh, white wine, Chardonnay, the king of white grapes. Mm -hmm. Anyone who says anything, anything but Chardonnay is, uh, it doesn't know what they're talking about. People say, Oh no, I won't have any Chardonnay. Then you say, well, would, would you like some Chablis? And they say, Oh yes, that'd be lovely. <laughs> Chablis of course being Chardonnay. So I'm having Chardonnay, but because of my perversity, I'm having Argentine Chardonnay today, not, um, not French. And the bottom, the, the back of this bottle of Chardonnay called El Enemigo, which is a great name, which you'll understand in a second, says this. At the end of the journey, we remember only one battle, the one we fought against ourselves, the original enemy, the one that defined us. Enemigo. What a great name, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, my uh, rosé is from one of my favorite Willamette Valley vineyards, and um, it's an estate rosé. Uh, made from the Pinot Noir grape, and I do not love Pinot Noir, but I love Pinot Noir rosé. So I also love Pinot I'm Noir doing. champagne. So you know, yes, you that's good. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I you. don't Just... much care for for red Pinot. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm with you I'm, on that too. Uh, yeah. So listen, fans, our first story today is timely indeed, as it involves an uprising. And as we record this, 
on June 26, 2023, we're all digesting the aftermath of the brief, but one hopes consequential PMC Wagner military mutiny or coup or whatever you want to call it in Russia uh, over the weekend, to which I can only say Slava Ukraini. It's hard to see how this can be anything but a net negative for Putin, and it should be boosting the morale of our friends in Ukraine. What do you think, Alex? I well, I agree with that. But beyond that, it's very hard to speculate as to what on earth it means. I mean, um, plainly, the Wagner Group, Wagner Group, have uh, at least a portion of it, including its most senior leadership, has turned against their Kremlin masters, and that's to be welcomed. But of course, if if the answer to something is more power to a group of mercenaries recruited from prisons, uh, you're probably asking the wrong question. So I didn't know who I wanted to lose more in that. Fight, especially when it came to control of a nuclear armed state. But this so-called rebellion seems to have fizzled, dissolved incredibly quickly. Um, you know, it flared in a matter of days to marching yeah. on Moscow to uh, out of it and abandoned to a security promise made for the head of the Wagner group being effectively, as far as I can see from Putin now, abandoned. I mean, you've got to be a special kind of idiot to trust anything Putin says these days. You know, this I would, the promise of your uh, own security is not worth the paper it was written on. I would definitely have a food taster if I were Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin. Well, it's but, a matter of of uh, the half life on the time before he accidentally falls out of a high window is uh, eroding fast. I fear. Yeah, I think he. Well, I, I, I mean, he's not a person that necessarily want on the right? earth, but yeah, yeah, and but after all, I mean, the guy is a mercenary, and uh, you know, if he got paid and if he thinks he can live to. You know, fight or not fight another day. I guess he survived the day, which is amazing. And I have to say, there's a little bit of the intelligence officer in me that almost has to wonder if this is not an incredibly Putin-esque, KGB-inspired uh, way to test who was loyal to Putin and who wasn't. And it was all a propaganda play. Oh, but to test I, the loyalists. I, I can't the think that with the twelve. I can't think that with the twelve dead uh, Russian helicopter pilots. I don't think that would have been part of the plan. Well, plus you've got to bear in mind the huge amount of armor and materiel that was taken away from vital front line. You see, it's yeah. very hard to think of it as some kind of, you know, deliberate ploy. You see the occasional conspiracy theory online that they're performing a yeah. massive boomerang to come round through Belarus and into Ukraine. People haven't yeah. and into Kiev, but they really haven't thought about the time that would take the uh, ramification, which is, which is just not happening anyway. So. That's for the birds. But the guy personally is in Belarus, it seems. And I would tell you, he's no safer there than he would be in Russia itself. Yeah, not unless he's somehow got enough money to pay off uh, Putin's crony. To there isn't, turn, there isn't enough money in the turn world. Turn against Putin, but not help. No, I think you're right about that. I think he's a, a dead man walking. I do think that uh, it, it, it's, it's nothing but good news uh, for the Ukrainians, as long as it doesn't push Putin over into desperation, which... One would think if it were going to do that, it already would have by now. Um, but imagine the unit cohesion and the morale in these units of Wagner fighters who have decided to sign contracts with the Russian Defense Ministry instead of being executed. And imagine being in the trenches if you're a regular Russian soldier with these Wagner guys. Yeah. Forget you, you, you don't know if they're going to pull a bullet in the back of your head or if you want to put a bullet in the back of theirs. I mean, right. even before you get to, to that kind of, um, I mean, they're, they're like the you know, death's head commandos of the suicide battalions. The, the Germans had towards the end of the war, I, I would imagine, if they weren't already. But even before that, imagine what it must have been like serving in these units. We're fighting the Ukrainian Nazis, is what they were told. 
Now we're about turning and we're marching on Moscow. Now we're going back again. That's in yeah. the space of like four days. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, in some ways, I think the most troubling thing for Putin has to be the way they were apparently received in Rostov. I mean, imagine Rostov was the headquarters for the Russian military operations in Ukraine. And at least right. based on the video I saw, these guys were welcomed as friends. Well, I, I got to tell you, though. If, if an army marches into your town, the smart thing to do is to wave a flag and say, welcome. And then when the next army marches in next week, it's fantastic. Great to see you. So I wouldn't read too much into that one. But I, well, I, I, I see your point, of course. That's true. I, I I don't know whether the person on the street opinion is uh, is as valuable. But presumably Rostov being the center of military operations in for Ukraine, they had some weapons, and there probably were regular Russian soldiers that could have defended that town if they there, wanted. There to. was at least one regular unit that was reported to have um, uh, joined the Wagner group rather than oppose it. Um, it was an airborne military, airborne army unit equivalent. Um, yeah. I'm not getting the terminology quite right, but um, it, that was reported. And to your point, that their disloyalty has been flushed out. But of course some of these pe people will rightly think to themselves well what am i loyal to am i loyal to russia or am i loyal to vladimir putin yeah. are those two things separated and that is where putin's in invincibility suddenly pierced because it's put in in ways that even his control of the media can't take away from things the notion that his interests are not indivisible from the interests of the state yeah and that there's alternatives too which yeah. is what he's tried very hard to create over the last um, two decades was not was not true that there were no good alternatives to him. And I'm not saying in reality Prigozhin's a good alternative, but the idea that somebody could, you know, capture a town and bring tanks within 150 uh, miles of Moscow that's 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 given some people some some second thoughts. But let's circle back uh, to our original uprising that we wanted to talk about. I will say. I do think, and I think our show has got a very good track record of predicting things happening in Ukraine. I do think that one way or the other, as we both agree, Progrosian's days are certainly numbered. But I think we might have seen the beginning of the end of uh, Putin, at least as an absolute dictator as well. I certainly hope so. And the story I'm going to tell has some resonances with that. This is the 20th story from uh, the first book of Dean history called The Day of the Tiles. And uh, we've all, uh, you and I included Brian, uh, together several times, had an occasional night on the tiles. But the day of the tiles is quite different, and depending on how you spend your nights, I suppose, um, rather more painful. Uh, the ancient city of Grenoble, which is why you've chosen your wine, uh, was the capital of the old uh, French region of Dauphiny in the southeast. Possession of the region uh, by French royalty came with the condition that the heir to the throne be called Dauphin after it and there's a there's a parallel brian in my country with prince of wales um the principality has uh as part of being our country the the heir to the throne in my country is named prince of, of wales or one day perhaps princess uh, of wales anyway um louis the uh, 16th did not have a good run of things uh what with being the only french monarch to be executed and presiding over the end of a thousand years of royal rule and so forth but he could hardly have appreciated that things would kick off in the southeastern corner of the realm at Grenoble. Uh, the town people were uh, impoverished by France's ongoing financial crisis. Harvests were bad. Uh, bread was expensive. That's very bad for the state. 
and the first, the clerical, and second, aristocratic estates, indicated zero willingness to give up their privileges. So the third estate, the peasants and bourgeois, looked to take things into their own hands. As so often with new movements, they sought to ground their demands in the heritage of an older tradition so as to lend them uh, and their arguments credibility and authority. Thus, the old estates of the province of Dauphiny would serve as the pretext for their gathering of a proto-Republican movement. Locked in a headlong death spiral of absolutism and short-sighted self-interest, both the crown and the nobles and clergymen in orbit around it refused to yield an inch on anything. Nowadays, in my country and perhaps in yours, uh, they'd have been spinning the fact that we were in listening mode and uh, had a judge-led inquiry with six modules that would report <laughs> back in a few years, right. and they might well have survived. So it was, given their unwillingness to move, that the Crown sent troops to quell uh, this movement. We've discussed this before in the podcast. There are good reasons not to put troops on the streets at times of concern about law and order. Not only because there is a distinction between the civilian populace policing itself and the army imposing law on it, that's between civil and martial law, but also there is the fact that once the army is ployed, it deployed, the army does what it does. Armies mm -hmm. are for fighting. Um, thus it was that as the elite regiments of the Royal Navy sought to suppress protesters, the sight of them bayoneting an old man in the street spurred the crowds in Grenoble to fury. Small groups of troops, outnumbered by the mass of revolting citizens of Grenoble, opened fire into the crowds. And, mm. and the rioters dispersed and took to the roofs of the buildings around them. Uh, and on the streets uh, down which the soldiers were seeking to quell dissent, a rain of roof tiles from all sides soon assailed the forces of the crown. Hence, day of the tiles. Brian, such circumstances are all but impossible for law enforcement. The mob out of control cannot be reasoned with. It's made up of their fellow Frenchmen, whose demands they may well very share, very, 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 very well may share uh, on another occasion. So the troops gradually yielded control of much of the town, but not the arsenal. Never the arsenal. And well, except judges, for in Seattle in the summer of 2020. Yeah, you t we told me about that. And I was aghast. Uh, but, you know, on this occasion, they, uh, they they stuck at least to this rule. The judges who were due to attend the meeting of the estates were pressed back to the palace by a crowd carrying flowers and singing the praises of Parliament. And the army, realizing that it was onto a loser, gave permission for the estates to meet as long as it took place outside the city. And that is a compromise that was canny and astute, albeit uh, having looked at the history books, I must say that the authority possessed to offer that um, uh, permission or concession is rather elusive. Anyway, these events therefore constitute both the first violent outbreak uh, in what became the French Revolution and its first public meetings, which saw demands both for a national parliament and an end to absolute monarchy. And that is a movement that changed the whole of Europe. So I say it's worth knowing about the day of the tiles. I agree. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you and I have tiled one on together. Mm -hmm. Spot on. Let me give you a couple of postscripts. First, it is, um, you and I have discussed this before. It's amazing how much people preferred not to blame the monarchy, instead holding yeah. bad servants of the crown responsible. This happens in your country all the time. It wasn't the president, it was the advisors. 
Yeah. It happens in my country all the time. It wasn't the king or queen. It wasn't the prime minister. It was those around them. As they conducted their protests, the citizens of Grenoble sang praises to the king. So even at that point, Louis could have rescued things with a different approach. Second final postscript. When you're in a coup in the modern age, as we saw all the way through Africa and um, South America as took the 20th century, saw all its coups, the key is to seize the airport and seize the radio station. In a French anti-monarchic protest, what you do is seize the cathedral. As the crowds rang the great bells of the cathedral in a symbol for the peasantry around Grenoble to come to their aid and join in the riot. And I thought the symbolism of those sacred bells ringing out for that to be quite potent. Yeah, and probably not preordained, right? I mean, there was that's not no. not preagreed. There was no there was no document that says, "Hey, when you hear these bells, you know, ride it all, to the it's sound all of kicking them. off." No, it, yeah. it was it was instead the um, that's not the right time for vespers. Right, game on. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, your your point your point about uh, about not taking on the monarchy is ringing true today, in, literally today in Russia. Prigozhin is trying to save his own life. By saying, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean Vladimir Putin. I meant those generals that are ill-advising him and giving him bad information and is filling his head full of lies. So even now that narrative continues, although in this case, maybe it's more self-serving than uh, patriotic in anyone's view. Right. It's, uh, But of course, the other reason he would say that even if he was still carrying on is that he's more likely to secure in a culture which has been told Vladimir Putin is, you know, a, a philosopher king by all of their media for the last two decades, you're much more likely to realize success by saying the problem here is the head of the army and the chief of staff, which was his argument. It's not, yeah. of course, it's not Vladimir Putin, or at least not directly. He didn't say that. Also a better way to stay alive, too. Well, as it turns out, yeah. Uh, although I still don't think it'll work. So we're, uh, is there evidence of sort of how lethal it was to have tiles let me put it like this was the army actually in fear of their safety or was it just more oh this is serious we better start talking um of course grenoble is like a lot we could learn a lot from our wise forefathers gentle density is a good thing four or five story uh townhouses are very attractive highly sought after in cities across europe and uh as their uh number of stories implies tall so throwing tiles, but you're not just one or two either, at somebody from their roof can have serious deleterious effect. I'm not saying they killed dozens, but they certainly injured a lot of people. They, they, uh, they will have been a few, inevitably have been a few casualties. But the guy, they, was, these troops must have been terrified as well, because yeah. it was like the houses were falling apart on top of them. Um, yeah. so it's a really vivid image as you think about it. The, the entirety of the roof tiles of every house around you suddenly belting down with precision. It's not just falling, it's aimed at you. Yeah. Um, must have been absolutely terrifying. And there's a famous painting, I think, about the... Uh day of the tiles it was painted about 100 years later right and no illustrations in uh, in my book apart from obviously the, uh, the cover but um and i tended not to do threads uh, when i tell the stories online of, of pictures i did a couple when it it really was demanded it really was necessary but i like to stick with the purity of prose but you're right there's a great picture of uh, the day of the tiles well any of our fans that would rather see an artist's imagining of it than their own imagining of it can uh, look it up. We won't put it in the show notes, so to stay pure to the uh, Alex <laughs> Dean brand. But you okay. you can find it with an easy Google, my friends, I promise you. So our other story today, also about France. Oh. And if this I'm not is, mistaken. 
It's correct. And this is the latest story that I have uh, told on Twitter. So it's not in either of the books. Uh, you're, you're hearing it here before it's in publication. And um, this is he, you know, I'm, this is the 203rd Dean history I've told online. There are plenty of stories, too, in the books that are not online. But I would say this, Brian, I think this is the story I've told that has the most pure kind of there is a lesson to this story uh -huh. that I've told of any of them. And it's a short, uh, it's a shorter story. And it goes like this. Everyone knows that at Waterloo, Napoleon did surrender. Oh, my, my. Actually, he did not, uh, as you know. Uh, but he fled and uh, abdicated, having lost at Waterloo. Uh, so the pub quiz question is, what was Napoleon's last victory? And if you're uh, listening or watching, uh, I suggest you might want to pause for a moment and see if you can answer. And for those of you who got it right, well done. For those of you who just wanted to enjoy uh, listening, the answer is the Battle of Ligny. L-I-G-N-Y, pronounced Lini, uh, which was fought two days before Waterloo. And I say there is a reason that that information is useful, apart from perhaps winning you a point in a pub quiz. And it is this. Emperor Napoleon's strategy in his 100 days in command after he had been restored uh, to power was to try to fight the allies across Europe who opposed him separately. Since massed together, they would constitute too strong a force, even for the French army which was a tremendous force in its, in that day. And at Ligny, in a bloody battle, he caught a good portion of the Prussian army and achieved great success against them. And as I told the story, as an um, illustration of Prussian travails, I, I noted by way of illustration of uh, the Prussians getting uh, caught up at Ligny, that Blucher himself, who was 72 years old at the time, uh, was in personal com command of uh, forces in the field. He'd been frustrated by how uh, the battle was going and he took personal command of a bit of the action and he had a, sh a horse killed from under him uh, and they fell, the horse fell on top of um, uh, Blucher. He could well have died, uh, but he didn't. He he emerged slightly injured. Anyway, at the time, uh, Prussia's tactical defeat at Ligny, bloody tactical defeat, was likely seen as another sign of Napoleon's phenomenal success. And no doubt, for 48 hours, that's what Napoleon thought. But the result at Ligny was decided in large part because the Prussians decided to withdraw, marshalling their forces and retreating in good order. And they did so not in the most natural line of escape, which was to the east. They did so to the north, towards Wellington's army, the British army, which was fast approaching. But there is all the difference in the world. This is the point. There is all the difference in the world between an orderly retreat and a rout. And on this occasion, still functioning as a fighting army as a result of their retreat, reinforced with fresh troops by the time the next battle came, and now united with their British and other allies, famously, the Prussians were able to play a vital part in Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo two days later. The ability of the Prussians to pull back in an organised fashion once their forces had been committed on the battlefield is not the stuff of oft-told heroic tales, but it is worth dwelling on, I think. Because the thing is to be able, as the grape shot whizzes by and your colleagues panic on the one hand and demand more belligerence on the other, to be able accurately to assess, is this the vital battle at which all must be committed? Or is it the precursor to the decisive one for which we should save our strength? And there is a reason that winning the battle and not the war is an expression. Ask yourself this. 
What do you associate with Napoleon when you hear his name? Is it his final victory at Ligny or his final defeat at Waterloo? And in light of your answer to that, now assess the Prussian retreat from the battlefield at Ligny. Yeah. Good one. Well, yeah, yeah, very good. And uh, hot off the presses, as they say, too. Ooh. You can only find it here and on Alex's Twitter space. Um, how would you compare this to an unfair question? I didn't prepare you for it, but how would you compare this to Dunkirk? Um, you know, obviously, oh, Dunkirk is known in history right. for saving the British army, but it wasn't exactly an orderly he retreat, Heavens, right? no. No, the yeah. Prussians acquitted themselves admirably at leaning. And what, what part of what I'm admiring is their the willingness to maintain themselves as a tact, as a fighting force and in an orderly fashion retreat the british did not retreat in an orderly fashion towards the dunkirk pocket uh, and it was a miracle uh, that dunkirk came off not least because of the incredible willingness of the little every little boat owner in the south coast and and, and well beyond boats from scotland yeah, yeah. people from all over my country just took their boats so right sod it let's go and they went to the beach and hauled guys off uh, the beach of dunkirk the loss of materiel at dunkirk was incredible we lost almost all our tanks um, you know, the, the British Expeditionary Force was shattered. Uh, we lost um, huge numbers of men, uh, prisoners of war. And if the Germans had pushed on rather than having this very weird pause about which historians yeah. negotiate, and so and historians argue um, to this day, the art, there was an argument about not letting one unit overtake another. There was an argument about whether the right thing was to pause and let the Luftwaffe finish the job, which plainly it couldn't do on its own. If the Germans had forced their advantage, the effect on the British army would have been shattering. The point about Lini is that it was the Prussian will that ensured their yeah. orderly retreat, not a big mistake by their opponents, which, with all great credit to the heroes of Dunkirk, was what happened. It was the German mistake that allowed... Um, uh, the large large portion of the men to come off the beaches rather than um, British uh, tactical brilliance. Well, and I think your point is reinforced about the Prussians by thinking about, you know, two forces that were operating on, on them at the same time at the individual level. And I'm sure like in every army, a lot of these people are conscripts and young or very old. The, the idea of doing anything in an orderly way when you're getting shot at uh, is a problem. And then the martial culture, especially of the Prussians, to be able to say, instead of I'm going to fight to the death for the fatherland, to say I'm going to back away and live to fight another day, that probably went against a lot of the ego of the commanders. It absolutely did. And that's part of, I suppose, why I admire uh, what they did and how they pulled it off. Um, and, and had they um, done the, you know, if they were just determined to flee and then break their units down, that would have been terrible. Had they done the easiest thing for them as, as a fighting unit and withdrawn to the east, they would have found it more difficult to unite with Wellington's forces in time to play uh, the influential role they did at Waterloo. So everything about what they they undertook there is to be, I think, admired. But there's a, there's a lesson there for corporate life. There's a lesson there for sports. There's a lesson there for arguments you have in, in your own life, you know. Is this the ultimate battle? Yeah. Um, is this, is this where is every this, resource should be committed? Is it the hill you want to die on? Yeah. 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 No, that's a very good point. And actually, this a little bit kind of brings me back to something I was thinking about over the weekend with uh, with what happened in Russia. I saw, I don't know if it was on your Twitter feed or one of your countrymen's Twitter feed, but they're, they put up photographs of these sort of like rusting, decayed, falling off the cliffs defense sites in Scotland from World War II. And, you know, the joke was, oh, if the Russians come our way, we'll just reactivate these sites, meaning obviously they had not been maintained. 
And you have to wonder if, in our case, all of a sudden some crazy general in the Canadian military assembled 20,000 people and rolled them across Vermont, probably that person would get pretty far before yeah. we organized their annihilation. I, and same thing for you guys. I didn't see the the thread that you were, were mentioning, but I must say I've, I know the phenomenon you're talking about. If one takes the train north of Edinburgh, north of Glasgow, if you go up um, towards Dundee, you go through Kirkcaldy and so forth, you imagine how far the Germans would have had to, assuming they invaded from the south of England as, as seemed to be their plan. But you have to imagine how far the Germans would have come the faith and belief that we would still be fighting on is demonstrated by the gun posts, the little pillboxes, the machine yeah. gun posts that are dug into the landscape. And they absolutely thought we would still be fighting once the Germans had fought north of Edinburgh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also was also to defend against a sea invasion from the north yeah, too right but the but, most yeah, by yeah, far the most point, likely yeah. outcome was of course to fight their way up the country any most um plans to invade this country will always begin with capture london yeah and i but i guess what I, what i'm sort of getting at is we've said this many times since covid and january 6th and other crazy shit that's happened which is i'm now operating under the principle of just because something is uh unbelievable doesn't mean it's not possible and that's, you know, this guy rolled tanks, uh, as we said, into Rostov and took the town. And I wonder how many of our countries would, uh, you know, with no warning, be able to defend against that. Now, of course, we hopefully come back and ultimately win, but everybody might be more vulnerable than we think. And if I was Poland, I'd be thinking about that. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, Moldova. Um, extraordinary. Lithuania. Yeah. Well, these are two great uh, lessons at, at the right time, which is what we try to uh, try to accomplish around here. I do have, uh, before we sign off, I do have a, uh, a request uh, for our wonderful fans. Um, and that is, we, we've, been, we've just grown so much over these 54 episodes. And we uh, switched to video after episode 15. And we have this growing group of listeners and viewers. But I would ask this, if you found us back in the pre-video days, and or you follow us mostly on Spotify or another podcast channel, please just take a minute, subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitter. Even if you don't watch on YouTube, it's helpful to us and vice versa. If you only know us from YouTube or from Twitter, uh, go on Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get, get, get your podcast and give us a good review because believe me, it all helps keep the show going. It really helps us out. Spot on. And thank you, everybody. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Species. See you next time. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.